This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Bring out your date. Bring out your date. Here's one. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your nine pence. I'm not dead. Yeah. He says he's not dead. Yes, he is. I'm not he isn't? Well, he will be soon. He's very ill. I'm getting better. No, you're not. You'll be stone dead in a moment. Oh, I can't take him like that. It's against regulations. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and I don't know about you, but I am not dead yet. At least, I don't think I am. Hey, Joe, Joe you can see me, right? Okay, yeah, all right, good. All right, good, good. Today, to help you wring the most out of the life you've got left, we welcome the time management guru for humans, Oliver Berkman. In our headlines, when will the stock market hit rock bottom? We'll ask OG. Plus, we'll throw out the Haven Lifeline to Matthew, who's wondering about avoiding what he calls a wash sale. Personally, I'm a big fan of soap, Matthew, but suit yourself. And then you already know that I'll horse around with some of my incredible trivia. And now, two guys who live to see you stack your Benjamins, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-G. And a happy Wednesday to you, stackers. You made it halfway through the week. It's all downhill from here. Hey, everybody. I'm Joe Salcihai, Average Joe Money on Twitter. And what a show we have for you today. We'll start across the table from me with the amazing, the one, the only, Mr. OG. Estoy aquí. You know, th- there's that old song, uh, that Loverboy song, Working for the Weekend, Doug's favorite song. Everybody's working for the weekend. Remember that one? This weekend especially, because we got 4th of July weekend coming up. That's right. 
You already making plans? Got the grill stuff all ready? Uh, yes, we are. I, I so badly want to barbecue some stuff, but it's like pretty much you can just leave a slab of meat outside. Right. It's so hot right now that it would just kind of sort of cook itself over a period of the afternoon generally. Or we can just eat at like two in the morning when it's a, Perfect. <laughs> it's a much more temperate 87. But yeah, I'm working this whole week, man. How about you? I am. Well, no, uh, I'm working. Exactly. Uh, I no, knew it. Yes. Uh, yes, I No. No. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, no, not. And that is a lie. Yes. We just took a polygraph test and Joe, that is a lie. No, I'm not. I'm actually uh, enjoying a finally off the book tour holiday out hiking in the mountains or on my way to hike in the mountains as people listen Taking to this. Taking a vacation from your six month vacation from yeah, the podcast. It's, it's been awful. I've done so much, <laughs> been so much, done so much traveling that I need some travel, you know? So if I could just yeah. get on the road one more time, like that would be great. Yeah. Wash away all the travel. We got a great show today. We got Oliver Berkman talking about how do you juggle all the things, you know, so many great time management tools out there. You know how you say, oh, gee, that you've screwed up everything twice so that the average listener doesn't have to. Oliver's a guy that's tried every single one of the guru's time management methods to see if they work. He's done the getting things done, the David Allen. He's done so many of the different uh, different techniques, the Pomodoro technique, which sounds like uh, sounds like a type of small dog. <laughs> I, oh, that's that's a beautiful. Is that a Pomodoro? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know dog names, but it sounds like no, it could be. A it dog. does sound like a dog. A little fluffy. We've one. got uh, we got a great show. Oliver's here. Well, we're going to talk about the stock market first. A couple people worried about that right now, OG. But even before that, this episode sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. Do you want your money to dream big? Do you want your money to be a total self-starter? Are you annoyed that your money doesn't work hard enough? Well, don't worry. Betterment is here to help. Betterment's the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Their automated technology is built to help maximize returns, meaning when you invest with Betterment, your money can auto-adjust as you get closer to your goal, rebalance if your portfolio gets too far out of line, and your dividends are automatically reinvested. That can increase the potential for compound returns. In other words, your money's breaking a sweat while you can be breaking bread. You'll never picture your money in the same way again. Betterment, the automated investing and savings app that makes your money hustle. Visit betterment.com to get started. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. All right. The stock market, Oliver Berkman, and better time management for humans. Let's go. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our headline today comes to us from The Wall Street Journal. This is written by Kane Atani. People wonder when stocks are going to bottom out. Well, guess what? This piece went and took a look and said stocks historically don't bottom out until until the Fed eases up. Dun, dun, dun. Another week of 
Whipsaw stock trading has many investors wondering how much further the market's going to fall. If history is any guide, sell-off might still be in its early stages, this piece says. More doom and gloom for the Wall Street Journal, OG. Looks like uh, until the Fed eases up, we might be in trouble. Well, I don't know that we're in the early stages. Minus 20-something in the S&P, give or take. Uh, seems a lot like uh, mid-stages. But, but, you know, who knows? Who knows? Nobody knows. That's the, the, thing that's the fun thing about this. The thing that's frustrating to me about this, this uh, recession, right, is that so many things are different. I mean, recessions usually Ooh, come not with- Not a recession yet. Not a recession yet. Well, as we, re- as we record this, but when it comes out, I think we can agree that it's a recession. I, th- I have yet to hear one guru say, yeah, probably not no, going to be a recession. Yeah. What's the definition? You got to have two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. I mean- uh, But aren't we, getting, aren't we getting that call by the day this comes out? I think we, I think what we do I know. I'm just a podcaster. Who knows? Anyway, it feels like it. It smells like it and it looks like it. It's probably a duck. Let's use the word recession. <laughs> but how many of these recessionary times, whether it's a oh, recession or not, how about that? I like it. Re- recessionist qualities come with a job boom, right? Where, where people are getting not only paid more money, but, but we're seeking out workers left and right. Like every recession that I've known my life and then have studied from before I was alive, all those came with massive layoffs. It's a whole different ball game this time. Yeah. This is kind of a weird thing, you know, where, where unemployment is really low. There's more jobs being offered than there are people to fill them. The housing market is obviously slowing down in various places throughout the country. Interest rates are higher. I read something over about, I don't know, 10 days ago or so that said the interest rate changed going from two and a half percent to six, which is where the 30 year rate was uh, just, you know, six months ago now is above six has changed the availability of the, of the market in terms of the people who can afford $400,000 houses by 18 million households. Wow. 18 million fewer households are able to afford a $400,000 house. So you got to imagine that's going to have some pressure on house prices, if nothing else is going to flatline for a while. But yet in some areas, I live in Dallas, there's, there's nary a breath of housing issues. There's still more people moving and you know, it's just weird. I had a discussion with Paula Pant about that over on the afford anything podcast. OG. And she believes from the things she's reading that it just changes the nature of who the buyer is. So even though there's fewer buyers there, you now have a different type of buyer that's coming in and purchasing. Like as an example, Goldman Sachs, you might've read a few weeks ago, bought a whole damn neighborhood, I think in Arizona, just came in. And now you have, now you have, as some people start to falter with their mortgages, you have other people with very strong financials coming in and swooping in before prices go down. So she actually believes- Are are we seeing people that are having issues with their mortgages yet? I don't think so. Not yet. I think we're at the leading edge, which scares me. When we talked to people like Charlie Wise a couple of weeks ago from TransUnion saying we're just starting to see people start to struggle, but you know, looking at but the, it's on the uh, consumer debt side where interest rates can change, the vast majority of consumers right now are holding those 15 and 30 year mortgages at two or two and a half or three or three and a half percent. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of people who are looking at it going, oh, thank God I got this. Now the new buyer, the person who's coming in. And the issue with, you know, Goldman Sachs buying up properties is their timeline is forever. Yeah. You know, they're not interested in flipping it, right? So that house is, or in that case, that neighborhood is gone from the market forever. Like that will never be 
sold again, or if it does, it's packaged up and sold. Although, to be honest, I I got a feeling that this is the, you know, whatever du jour, the, you know, Johnny come lately's of, of I'm going to go buy a neighborhood in Scottsdale because I've got hedge fund money and, you know, there's nothing else to do with it right now. I also saw something that Open Door, which is a company that's kind of like a Zillow or something like that, one of these real estate companies, they now have some obscene amount. They own four percent of the available houses for sale, and really, you know, some some really weird number. And it's like, well, those are the people that are going to get hosed, right? The investors in that company, the investors of the, you know, that private real estate deal, that that private placement, you know, those esoteric investments that were never going to lose money because it always goes up, and so does crypto, and you know what I mean, like all of that stuff. I feel I don't have any data for this, but I feel like the average homeowner. I mean, listen, if you're still holding on to a five and a half percent mortgage, like I don't know why. Well, even at five and a half percent, you've got a better deal than than the going rate. So it seems like new buyers are screwed. It seems like anybody who wanted to refinance is screwed. Anybody who wanted to upgrade, maybe downgrade is okay. But from a consumer standpoint, it's it is kind of interesting though that still the stock market low compared to recent numbers, but you know, it's pretty much back to kind of that long-term trend line. If you kind of draw the, the, you know, that slope, we were way above it. Now we're back to it. So technically still kind of sort of there, but a lot of new investors in the last couple of years, but uh, consumer confidence is as low as it's been since 2008. And that kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier. Like, how could that be? Like yeah. everybody's fully employed. You have the consumer balance sheet is insanely good debt is going up but it's still not that bad you know it's like i don't know when people to your point charlie wise from terry and you said that hanging on to their mortgages people are hanging and don't don't want to give up all that equity they've gotten over the past few years i think it's dangerous i think the big point here og though is this is so different that it is it's difficult to read something like this for me because i don't want to try to call the bottom like if I'm trying to call the bottom of this thing, I'm think I'm making a big mistake. Well, and we're exponentially closer to it. Is that the word I want to use? Yeah, infinitely closer. Infinitely closer. I don't think we're we're closer. Okay, how's that? We're closer to the bottom than we were. You know, two months ago, five months ago, <laughs> two months ago. Yeah. No, I mean, that we have a, to be. That is a grass is half green. <laughs> That's a grass is greener. That is a glass is half greener. Glass is half full. The glass is half greener. Hey, the guys, this actually talking about trying to call the bottom. This may be a good time. Check out this article that I bumped into online. I was uh, I clicked on this because I thought it was something entirely different. The 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 clickbait title was ten hilarious bull and bear calls. So you know what I'm thinking I'm going to get is like roar, like with a question mark. I'm I'm expecting like trained bears to be whatever noises bulls make. Like bear call number six will make you LOL. Right. Exactly. I open it up. I'm like, oh, who would love this? Joe and OG. So check it out. There's no subtext there. I'm not trying to say anything else about it, but it just seems like the kind of article. But just check it out. Read it. Scan it real fast and see if it's relevant. It's pertinent. It's germane to the discussion. Are you going to tell us what's in this thing or not? It's 10 really bad bull market or bear market calls that people had where they were like screaming from the mountaintops about it's all going to end or oh, it's about to go to the sky. 
and you know it didn't work out but i kept scrolling all the way through like maybe they're gonna surprise me number one is gonna be a cute little bull snorting meow and be hilarious it wasn't yeah number 10 on this list dow thirty thousand by 2008 oh gee they might have uh missed that robert zuccaro who is yes, some of the remember no just think about that remember how obscene that was <laughs> and it's where it is now so yeah he was off by a decade and a half but when he said 30,000 by 2008 it was not like uh he'll probably be off by like a 10 years or something it was like no dude that will never happen it wasn't like it's going to happen it was like that number will never never ever ever happen and here we are all belly aching about it being at 30,000. Right. So. Being back at 38. Yeah. Number nine, Paul uh, uh, Krugman, before he was a Nobel Prize winning economist, he made a bold statement about the internet, said that the internet would have no impact on investing, would have none. I believe it. How about this one? Uh, November of 2000, Dow 36,000, the new strategy for profiting from the coming rise in the stock market. Co-written by James Glassman and Kevin Hassett. If that name sounds familiar, it's because Hassett was one of Mitt Romney's main economic advisors when he campaigned for the presidency. Number seven, Netflix overvalued. Netflix ultimately ended up, I think, overvalued. I was say, that one <laughs> sounds right to me. Yeah. But the bad news was this was 2003. It's hard to imagine Netflix was around that long ago. Huh? I clicked on an article from 2003. No, no. Netflix overvalued that with the call was from Paul LaMonica in 2003. Oh, thank God. I thought my internet was old. Yes. He was, he was fairly certain that uh, Netflix was overvalued. It was trading at $10 and 98 cents a share and it was overvalued. Imagine if you could get all the Netflix you wanted now at 10 98. Wait long enough. You might be able to. (laughs) That's right. Dow was going to crash in 2018. We see this one all the time. AIG bullish on its credit default swaps uh, back in 2000, <laughs> headed into the 2008 crisis. Uh, yeah, loving the AIG before the, the financial crisis. What else we got? Uh, Google IPO doesn't make any sense. Steve Ballmer saying the iPhone would not get significant market share. We did this on Monday as well, Doug. People wrong about technology. Like Thomas Watson saying there would be no need for the home computer. Nobody's right. like five people are going to want the home computer. And TVs. and I think whenever we trust these people to uh, be the guru for us, and we go, well, Elon Musk says, so it must be. Yeah, but wait a minute. Isn't that what we're hoping people think of us as? Hopefully they think of us as the anti that. We are their beacon. We are their guiding the light. straight shooters. How often have we had a call we've had, we we've called the ridiculousness of calls and we've been right on those, but I don't recall us making a call yet in a decade. We got this. We, we, are you kidding me? We've got this whole make a plan, stick to your plan. That's as bold as it comes. You're out there on a skinny branch. Yes. Making a plan, the riskiest thing that you can do. And I think that's a good place to leave this. Take a risk, make a plan, forget trying to make the call. That that's our call. Going to be better off. Sounds gutsy. Coming up next, <laughs> a, a gentleman who's worked on so many different uh, personal productivity techniques during his own lifetime finally has written about that. You may have read his last couple books, "The Antidote: Happiness for People Who Can't Stand Positive Thinking," which is uh, 
book about positive thinking for people that roll their eyes at all the positive thinking stuff out there and help how to become slightly happier and get a bit more done. He's written a popular column for the guardian. This column will change your life and his email newsletter, the imperfectionist. He writes about productivity, morality, and more. And of course, once we identify the fact that we're human, we might be able to get more done. It's when we think we're superhuman. We don't get as much done. Oliver Berkman coming up next to talk about all that. But Doug, I think first we got a special holiday today. You're darn right, Joe. It's the holiday. Everyone's celebrating. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. Today, we celebrate Gary Busey's birthday. So my question is, how many teeth do horses have? Well, gee, there's two things that are painful. Number one is buying a new house. Number two is fixing up your house. So you've had electricians over today. You've got the walls half painted. Why don't you just move? I'm starting to think that might have been a more economical solution. You must know that Navy Federal Credit Union is here to help military members and their families tackle homeownership, dude. I, I do know that, yes. They offer mortgage options with zero down payment, so you don't need to wait years to save. And they offer mortgage options that don't require PMI insurance, so you'll save money each month, man. Yes. <laughs> Super. Members save $2,500 on average when they choose Navy Federal for their mortgage. And you can spend that $2,500 on more paint at your new house. With resources like Realty Plus, you can get an experienced real estate agent. They're a top VA home lender. Learn more at NavyFederal.org, insured by NCUA, equal housing lender. Well, if you're new to Stacking Benjamins, you may not know that I've tried out a lot of personal finance apps. I like to be a guinea pig and try out all these things. So I know what I'm talking about when it comes to uh, what's helpful and what isn't helpful. And the app that I've used the longest has been Monarch Money. And it's because Cheryl and I, my spouse, were able to collaborate together. We can work on our goals together and our budget and our goals are right next to each other on the app. It is clearly the next generation of personal finance apps. So what is it? Monarch is the top rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now, because you're a stacker, you'll get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. I love the fact that we get to collaborate. I love the fact that it's customizable. And I also love that it's this ad-free privacy you can trust. They never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch myself, I totally get why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, because you're a stacker, you're going to get an extended 30-day free trial to try it out like I try out many different apps. And this one was sticky for me because, well, you'll see when you try out the 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash Benjamins. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash Benjamins for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey there, stackers. I'm dental. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug. According to dentavet.co.uk, because I only trust Baroque horse teeth facts, a normal horse should have between 36 and 44 teeth. Wait a minute. I'm sorry. We have a margin of error of eight teeth? Joe's mom only has eight teeth left. Well, lucky for you, if you guessed anywhere between 36 and 44, you were right. Anyway, in other news, Gary Busey turned 78 today. Happy birthday, GB! 
And here he comes down the stairs. I'm so happy he's here. Finally, Productivity for Mortals with Oliver Berkman. How are you, man? I'm doing very well. How are you? Well, I'm I'm great. As you can see, we could use a dose of productivity here. However, <laughs> we really get this wrong. I mean, I, I feel like your impetus for writing this book was Inbox Zero didn't end the way that you had hoped that it would have, Oliver. Yeah, that's basically it. And I mean, the, the broader point that you maybe get out here is that I wrote this book as an act of self-therapy as much as <laughs> as much as anything else, having spent sort of years, arguably decades, on the sort of productivity treadmill. It's not that there's anything wrong with getting lots of stuff done. It's this sense that you have, or that I had all through my time as a fully paid up productivity geek that I was just around the corner from finally getting in control of all my stuff, you know, that it was like maybe next month or when I got the right system or something like that. And it never arrived. So you're, you spend your whole life kind of trying to get to this future moment when you're going to feel on top of all your stuff. And in the meantime, you don't even focus on the most important stuff. So yeah, that was my that was my ethos. And on the inbox zero specifically, yeah, if you get really really good at processing your email fast, like you're welcome to do that, but the result is that you'll get a lot more email. So it's not going to solve your email problems. I get frustrated when I hear you say that because I think that it's just right around the corner, you know? <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and yet you've tried every spreadsheet, you've tried every color coding, you've done the David Allen getting things done. And while it may help us get more productive, you write that it doesn't give us really a more, a bigger sense of fulfillment. Well, I do think it depends on the spirit that you come at it in, right? So I actually think David Allen's work is genius. And I, to this day, have integrated a lot of his insights into my work. But if you come at that... This isn't, wait a minute, Oliver, this is not what I was hoping for. I was hoping <laughs> you and I were going to have finally the David Allen bashing session. Oh, I can do so a little mild bashing as well. But the, <laughs> I think this is really important, right? This is a crucial point. Almost any productivity technique, the Pomodoro technique, time boxing, all these things that I tried and that never got me to nirvana. The problem with almost all of them is not that they're bad techniques. It's that you come to it thinking that this is going to enable you to become this kind of super optimized person who can do everything, who can follow all your ambitions, who can take care of all the obligations you feel, who can keep on top of all the incoming demands and emails and everything. And then it doesn't work because what happens there is it's just another way of avoiding the fact that our time is finite and we're going to have to make some really tough decisions with, about how we use it. Now, if you make those tough decisions, and I've got a lot better at making those tough decisions over the, over the years, then after that, yeah, absolutely, capture all your incoming open loops in a notebook. Work in periods of 25 minutes with five-minute breaks if that works for your energy rhythms. Like, that's fine. But the thing we really have to lose, I think, is this illusion that we're just around the corner from being able to do everything. Because that actually stops us from doing a handful of really, really, you know, meaningful, important things. This, this notion that someday we're going to get to do all the things and, and not have to say no to anything or make tough choices about anything. But it's sad, Oliver, because you you would think that that we would be there by now with all of these experts. In fact, you write in the introduction to your book that in 1930, John Maynard Keynes uh, said, we'd all be looking for things to do by this point, right? Right. We'd yeah. be so productive now that now we're, we're just hoping for more to do. And, and yet you explain that just as mortals, we don't work that way. We constantly fill this void with more crap. 
Right. We live in this world of infinite inputs. So this is involves sort of negative things like people wanting stuff from you and obligations that you feel, but it also involves positive things like places you want to visit, um, business ventures you want to launch, and other kinds of consumerism fills it with an infinite supply of, of wants and desires. All of it is infinite. And then here we are, totally finite, with a certain number of hours in the day and a certain number of, of years in a life. And we're constantly, I think, looking for ways to not have to face the truth. And so we call them productivity techniques and we call them uh, sort of ways of designing our lives. What they actually are is ways of keeping alive this fantasy that like soon we're going to get to not make any tough decisions. So I'm just all about this idea of like, no, firstly, you have to because it's the truth that we are finite and that you can only ever do a handful of the infinite number of possibilities that face you. But also like, uh, facing reality is also the way to do the coolest things and to make the biggest impact, right? It's not, this is not a recipe for like, why bother? Just forget it, stay home, play video games. It's like being in touch with reality like this, that's the way to say like, okay, I'm not going to get to do 90% of the things I dreamed of doing, but then I get to pour my time and energy and attention into the 10% and really sort of live that. When did you first have the aha that we only have 4,000 weeks-ish? Well, that calculation, I don't remember the day I made the actual calculation. What I do remember was the day I began to realize that productivity techniques weren't going to, uh, you know, solve the human condition for me. I, I write in the book about, it's a winter morning a few years ago. We were living in Brooklyn, New York at the time. Going to my co-working space that I used with an even, you know, even more things that I thought I had to get through by the end of that week than normal and feeling totally overwhelmed, trying to figure out which combination of uh, scheduling hacks and, and working methods I was going to use to like get through all this stuff, feeling kind of hopeless about it. And then just suddenly realizing like, oh, it's impossible. And, <laughs> and being really liberated by this understanding, right? It's like, oh, no, no. You, it's just like trying to make two plus two add up to five. Like you're not going to do it. And I mean, that was not only the beginning of a, of a journey that I was going on, that was just a sort of intellectual insight, which is only a small part of, of living into a different way of, of being. But like, that was really kind of liberating to realize that I was trying to do something that was simply not possible. Because once you take that on board, you're kind of free to say like, okay, well, now I'll just make the best decisions. I'll try and focus on the things that matter the most, or I will renegotiate this commitment or that commitment, or I will let that thing go because I have to let something go. And it's extraordinary how sort of um, crazy we can drive ourselves trying to do something that is basically the equivalent of like, I don't know, jumping three miles in the air. Nobody beats themselves up about the fact that they can't jump three miles in the air. You can't do it. <laughs> you know, it is, it is strangely so liberating, even as I hear you talk about it, uh, this idea that I can't do all of it. In fact, you quote a mutual friend of ours, uh, John Acuff, talking about now I can plan what I'm going to suck at, right? right. I, can, I can totally decide I'm going to let these things go, which is incredibly, incredibly powerful. But I think even more powerful is, and, and you do this right at the beginning of the book, kind of redefining time and what time kind of means and, and looking at yourself 
the same way, and this was a surprising analogy to me, Oliver, was when you looked at uh, at surfs uh, during, and not people surfing, I'm talking about medieval times, <laughs> yes. and how really... Surfs, we, not we, surfers. Yeah, right, right. That's right. We're kind of redoing... They looked at time so much differently than we do. And to some degree, while you say we don't want to go back to, to that lifestyle, <laughs> horrible in a lot of ways, there's still something to be said for the fact of this 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 kind of timeless reality yeah absolutely and i mean let me emphasize that at first i I go off on a whole thing about how medieval early medieval english peasants might have understood time and i make it clear like they had terrible lives they died much younger (laughs) they had constant like terrible diseases they had to like sleep in one room huts with the pigs and the chickens that they kept so that the wolves wouldn't uh you know, destroy their livelihoods. It was terrible life, but you're, you're being kind of judgy about their lifestyle, Oliver. I think. <laughs> and there's this one sense as, I mean, this is, there's a, I think it's an Italian proverb that translates as we were better off when things were worse. And I think that in this one respect, that might've been true. We just totally instinctively today, more basic than any debate about how to organize your time or whether you should be sort of high achieving or chill out or more basic than any of that is this fundamental assumption that there's like you and there's your time and you're separate from time and you're probably in some kind of struggle with time you're probably fighting against time or you're trying to master your time so it's a relationship between you and time and it's probably an adversarial relationship and it probably causes you a heck of a lot of stress trying to like get the upper hand in this relationship so you feel like there's some sort of yardstick or a timeline going alongside your life you know you're always trying to fit as much as you can into that little chunk before the next chunk comes along and I just think that whole basic idea to pre-industrial people uh, there's various I can give you various sort of anthropological sources it's not just pure speculation on my part I think that um that wouldn't have made sense right they would not have started from this notion that there was time and that then there was them and these two things were separate so they would not have felt too busy or like they were wasting time or that they were they had to find ways to fit more things into the same time and this way of life tends to go along with you know lifestyles and economies that are very very agricultural you're very closely connected to the land you milk the cows when the cows need milking and you harvest the crops when the crops need harvesting and if somebody comes along and like says why don't you batch process the cow milking why don't you sort of do all the milking of the cows like this for the year this week because then you won't have sort of the t- the, the costs of task switching won't get in your way well obviously that's crazy because the cows just need milking when they need milking i mean in industrialized agriculture they do make attempts to to do these things more efficiently of course but in that kind of peasant farmer lifestyle you wouldn't have ever got to the point of being like oh am i using my time efficiently or inefficiently because you just live your life and the rhythms of life come from the things that you're doing it's a really hard idea to put into words actually but I think there would have been a deep peace of mind to it because you wouldn't have gone through your life thinking like am I keeping up with the the timeline that's running alongside me do I need to fit you know am i going to get all the things i need to get done by the end of the week um and all these things and i think that there would have been a very deep deep kind of peace of mind in that despite 
all the horrible diseases, you know. Well, and as I was reading this, Oliver, I was reminded of the philosophy of uh, flow. I'm sure you're familiar with with flow. And just the idea that we get so we get so into whatever we're doing right now that time doesn't really matter anymore. I'm so into this. I have hmm. this richness of being right now that I that that who cares about great time management? It's it's really about richness more than anything else. Uh, you must be familiar with flow, I would imagine. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm I'm struck by. I mean, people have often brought this up in response to these parts of the book, and it's funny because I don't mention At flow all. or. Uh, yeah. Chick sent me high, you know, all that, all that psychology. Uh, I was going to let you pronounce his name so yeah. I didn't have to. Well, I did it. Way. So who knows? It's done now. I'm not doing it again. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I think flow states are one of the things that we're talking about when we talk about deep time, which is a phrase that I use in the book. I suppose maybe one of the places that I think we maybe go wrong is that those don't seem to be things that those kind of states don't primarily seem to be things that you that you can get by trying, as it were. You can set up the conditions for them, and that's great. But, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, you can't really, you know... You can't really solve for it. Right. You can't decide in the morning. Yes, exactly. You can't get up in the morning and be like, okay, I'm going to organize my day this way, this way, and that's going to mean that 10 till 12 today will be flow states. No, it's like <laughs> these things, they, they happen, you fall into them, they're an accident, and you as they say in sort of meditation circles, it's an accident, but you can make yourself more accident prone in terms of how you, you set up your, your life. Part of the problem when somebody says like flow states are good, therefore I'm going to try and have a flow state for this period of time today is they are trying to uh, exert a certain kind of control over time. And in a way that kind of attempt to exert control over time is, is part of the problem here Certainly we can influence our time and we can sort of arrange our day in a sensible way instead of a crazy-making way. But there's a very fundamental sense in which you can never control, like even the next moment. You just sort of have to trust life and see what happens. So I think that actually we, we probably do fall into those experiences of deep time and of flow, uh, which can be so productive, of course, if what you're doing in them is, is sort of making progress on a, on a project that you care about. We just sort of fall into them to the extent that we can give up the need to try to really, really control our time yeah. rather than trying to make sure that they happen, if that makes sense. Well, you have, and as you uh, mentioned, uh, flow is not a technique that we can embrace to get where we want to go. You have wonderful techniques throughout the book, but I want to go to a few that you have just in the appendix, some ideas for people to embrace their is it is is it finitity? Uh, the fact that we're finite. I don't know. I don't know how to say. I the say word. finitude, but um, but finitude. someone else might pronounce it differently. Yeah. yeah yes, yeah. finitude. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm giving you all the difficult words today and <laughs> and getting getting rid of them. Uh, but let's go through just a, a couple of these to give listeners some some sure. ideas about how to really address this. First, you talked about. Adopting a fixed volume approach to productivity. I really like this idea and hadn't hadn't thought of it before. Explain what that means. Well, what I mean by this, and I give some credit there as well to Cal Newport, who has, I think it's close to what he talks about fixed schedule productivity, or maybe that's an ex one example of this or something. But what I mean by fixed volume productivity is taking an approach to how you use time that puts time first and task second. And now I'll explain what I mean by that. In other words, you figure out what time you have available 
for, say, work or a certain kind of work. Maybe you, if you have a lot of control of your schedule, you might feel that it's realistic to do about three or four hours of very deep focused work in the course of a day, say. You might have eight hours in total for work that day before you are going to move on to family responsibilities or, or other things. And then having figured out the time that you have, you then fill that time or you plan to fill that time with the most important instances of that work that are, that are on your plate. You draw a box in your mind or on, in, literally on, in your calendar around a period of time and then you decide, well, given that I only have this time today, what are the most sensible uses of that limited time? And that's as opposed to waking up in the morning and saying, these are the 28 things that I have to get done by the end of the day. And then just like going into battle against reality in your attempt yeah. to, to cram them in somehow, which never works for a whole lot of reasons that we can discuss if you like. But, you know, apart from anything else, there'll be more than 28 items on that list by the end of the day. So it's not going to work. That is generally, though, Oliver, that is generally my approach. What I do is I put 67 things on a list. I call this the Evil Knievel approach. Remember the old <laughs> days when Evil Knievel would fail spectacularly and he'd have this huge crash? Like that would be the end of every day for me. You know, whatever floats your boat. But I think that the basic idea here is your time already is finite. So in drawing a box around a part of your calendar, you're not really changing anything. You're just acknowledging reality. You have 24 hours in a day and you have quite apart from sleeping, you have a bunch of things you have to do with them. And maybe you have a job where you're obliged to be present between certain times. Who knows? You have these different limitations already. So make them conscious, bring them to the surface, and then do your best to figure out what would make the most sense to, to put inside those times. It's extraordinary how deeply we seem to, or at least unconsciously, believe that if 20 things feel like they really need to get done today, then there must be some way to get those 20 things done. But the second thing there just doesn't follow from the first thing. There's no limit to the number of things that can really feel like they matter. And I forget this all the time. And when I remember it again, I'm, I'm sort of freed from a lot of the anxiety of, of overwhelm. If I've got 10 things weighing on my mind that, that in my ideal world would all be done by the end of today, but it's clearly impossible that they can all be done to the quality required by the end of today, then there is no point trying to figure out how to fit them all in. And, and it's much better for everybody involved, including the people I work with and the people relying on me or expecting things from me. It's much better if I can put aside, you know, the seven that aren't going to get done today in order to complete the three. And then I'll do the same tomorrow and eventually I will get through all these things. It takes a kind of patience that people think of as something like the opposite of being super productive, but it isn't. It's like, I think it's critical to being productive. Well, I think what it does too, Oliver, is it protects your confidence, which is so important when you're trying to achieve anything. And if I know that I can only get X done and at the end of the day, I achieve what I set out to achieve, my confidence goes up. That I actually, right. even I though too, I'm, yeah. I'm, yeah, even though I'm mortal and I, and I know I didn't get 86 things done, I got everything done that I thought I would achieve. I sleep better at night and tomorrow I show up refreshed and ready to fight another day. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that principle of doing what you intend to do, stopping and then showing up and doing it again and how much more in aggregate you will do over the long haul, that applies like in, so it, what it makes me think of is 
it's sort of advice for writing. People are interested in, in starting to write on a regular basis for whatever reason. This advice, which I have followed myself and which I think is so useful, to aim to do it for a significantly shorter period in the day than you think you probably could. You know, if you're just starting, do half an hour. And this probably applies to all sorts of other creative practices. Do it for 30 minutes and then critically stop, even if you're on a roll after the time is up. Walk away so that you'll want to get back to it the next day and the next day and the next day. And half an hour's writing every day for a couple of weeks will produce unbelievably more than uh, four hours writing every day, but you only actually do it for one day <laughs> and, and, and give up, you know? So I just think the connection between patience and confidence and sort of developing steadiness and actual accomplishment, it's really, it's really interesting and, and kind of quite a relief because it means you don't have to be sort of superhuman in order to really accomplish a whole bunch. I've got uh, just a couple more I'd like to focus on in our limited time together. Next up, you said to serialize and man, do I get this wrong one wrong over and over and over. But the older I get, the more I feel like I'm making progress in this area. Focus on only one big project at a time. We fail because we're trying to accomplish 16 big projects at once instead of one. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is very closely related to the idea of the fixed uh, volume productivity, because if you are going to be honest about your limited time, then you might see that the way to use that limited time most effectively is almost always to like see one thing through to completion before you move on to the next thing. I don't think you can apply this absolutely dogmatically in your life. You know, you can't you can't not do the sort of a lot of the sort of tiny little tasks that come through your email or whatever. But you can say that you're just going to have like one major project uh, in each domain of your life or each area of your business or something like that at a time and make the others wait. And the thing is, when you do that, when you make that explicit to yourself, you will feel anxious because you will think that the, that the projects you're going to put on the back burner for now that you can't afford to put them on the back burner. You're going to be like, no, no, they're, they're all really urgent. And you just have to see that the crucial skill here is not to find a way to do them all at once. The crucial skill here is to learn to tolerate that anxiety. Because if you can sit with that anxiety, take project A, put projects B, C, D, E, and F on the back burner, feel the fact that it makes you feel a bit anxious, but nonetheless, just focus on project A, and then do the same with project B. Like, even just a few days of this, and you'll see that it's actually the most effective way to get through those projects because, because you're not distracted by, by sort of switching between them. And above all, I think the main problem with multitasking between big projects, whenever one project gets difficult, you just let yourself drift off to one of the other projects and do a bit of work on that one. And so you never go through the difficult patch of, of any project, which is where the progress gets made. So that's why, you know, any any system, Kanban boards are an obvious one, any system for sort of steadily making sure that certain things get completed before you bring new things into the into the zone of, of doing, I think is really powerful. There are eight more <laughs> in just the appendix, along with about, uh, I think the number's a bajillion more wonderful ideas uh, throughout the book. The, the book is called 4,000 Weeks, it is embracing the fact that we're not going to get to all of it and then having productivity that is uh, much more for a human than for a robot. 
Oliver, thank you so much for spending time with us and talking productivity today. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Joe. It's been a pleasure. I'm Liz, the Chief Mom Officer, and when I'm not busy being the breadwinner of my family of five, I'm stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to Oliver Berkman. I love this idea, OG, of deciding what you're not going to do. What am I going to suck at? <laughs> like, hey, I'm just going to let this go. This isn't in my wheelhouse. And actually, you and I, with the stuff that we do with this coaching uh, that we get from Strategic Coach, have have learned kind of the opposite of that, right? It, it isn't so much about saying, I'm going to suck at this. It's a, I'm going to let this go because I'm not good at it. I'm not going to try to yeah. get better at this thing that I'm marginal at. Find somebody else who is really good at that and it is their unique ability. Yep, 100%. Good stuff. Thanks to Oliver Berkman for hanging out. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency, Doug, they put what you value first. Finding a cereal that stays crunchy in milk without tasting like little pebbles. Mm, uh, What if they're fruity pebbles? Yeah, but those last exactly 1.3 seconds before they're completely mush. You don't even have time to talk with fruity pebbles in the bowl. Mushy pebbles. I think I've had fruity pebbles twice my entire life. What the heck is wrong with you? It's like Pepsi. I mean, the first couple of spoonfuls are good, but then it's just pure sugar. You're not a Pepsi guy, huh? Who is a Pepsi person? No. I think a lot of people are. Send your hate mail to Doug. Yes. No. Uh, It's actually your loved ones and your time. But if you want to spend that extra time deciding if you like Pepsi or uh, seeing how much milk it takes to sink the Fruity Pebbles, whatever it might be, a lot more time doing that is more fun than trying to buy quality term life insurance through somebody else because Haven Life's application is simple. It's online. You get instant coverage decision. Their prices are affordable. All policies issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, more than a 160-year-old insurer. So you know they'll be there when you need them. Hey, uh, OG, looking at a great question here in our Facebook group, The Basement, if you want to hang out with the like-minded people, which you should, by the way, be in a group of like-minded people, head to our Basement Facebook group. Uh, StackyBenjamins.com slash basement gets you there. It's a little bit longer URL, but that will take you directly to our basement. But Matthew writes this. He says, is there a good tool to check whether exchanging two funds or ETFs would trigger a wash sale for being substantially identical? Before we get into this, OG, let's talk about what a wash sale is. Because remember we saw during the GameStop problem, we saw even a dude who was in the business, remember that? Made lots of trades and got hit by wash sale rules when he kept buying and selling and buying and selling. Can you explain this wash sale rule? So if you make money when you invest in the stock market, you have to pay taxes on the gains. So if you buy a stock and you sell it later and it's gone up in value, then you have to pay uh, a little bit of tax on on the amount of money that you profited. And the corollary to that is if you lose money, you can use those losses to offset any gains and also to offset any income on your tax return. So you get to use a little bit of that every year. So it's really important to keep track of those gains and losses. Thankfully, brokerage companies do that uh, automatically for you. However, there is one rule about having losses, and that's if you have a loss and then you turn around and buy the same thing again, then that loss goes away. So you have to have a 30-day window between buying the same thing. And, And let's say you have Microsoft stock and you sell it at a loss. You can't buy Microsoft stock again for 30 days if you want that loss to count. There's no real rule to say you can't buy it. You can do that, but you can't use the loss then on your taxes at that point. So the problem with wash sales is that if you do 
a lot of trades, you could end up with a whole bunch of real losses that none of them <laughs> count with your tax return and only the gains count. And so you think you've netted it out. You go, well, I've, I made 50 grand and I lost 50 grand. So I'm even, but in fact, nope. you know, maybe only 10,000 of those losses counted because you had wash sales. So the end you end up having to pay taxes on effectively a zero gain loss year, which, which could totally suck. Yeah. So thanks for that explanation. And uh, that will help everybody understand Matthew's question. He says, I'm hoping a family member who is a target date fund in a taxable brokerage account, and she'd like to sell it to purchase the Vanguard total market ETF. So there's some similarities, but I don't think they're substantially identical since a target date fund would also have a mixture of international and bond funds. But he's wondering if this trade from a target date fund OG is substantial enough to the Vanguard total market ETF that there's a tool he should check and see whether, um, whether he'd trigger a wash sale. I'm not aware of any tool that you can use that will decide for you if the uh, two products are substantially similar. You know, we're not tax people. You got to talk to your own tax person on this. But the IRS is particularly vague on this on purpose. You have to use your best judgment. When they wrote the rule many years ago, there weren't things like mutual funds and ETFs. So substantially similar meant basically the same thing, right? You know, if you had Coke and swapped it for Pepsi, you'd say, well, but they're both carbonated beverages. Yes, but they're different companies. So you're not going to trigger a wash sale by swapping Coke for Pepsi. If you uh, swapped Coke stock for Coke preferred stock, I think you've got an issue. It's kind of sort of the same thing. What if you did one company's S&P 500 index fund with another company's S&P 500 index fund? Yeah. So again, the IRS is really vague on this and they say that you have to consider all facts and circumstances. And generally speaking, one mutual fund or ETF company compared to another mutual fund or ETF company is not substantially identical. So you'd say, well, but aren't the stuff, you know, Vanguard's kind of sort of the same as BlackRock or iShares? Yeah, sort of. But they're different companies. They have different cost structures. They've had different, you know, purchase dates. Yeah, different ways they track the S and P five hundred slightly. Certainly, that could be a, that could be different as well. So I think that your you know your best bet is to consider you know talking to a CPA about this if this is going to be you know something that is a substantial amount. But almost unequivocally, I could say that changing from a target date fund to a total market fund or you know, a target date fund to an S&P fund or something like that is not substantially similar enough to worry about. So I think you're safe on that one. That one, that one, I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're fine. Yeah. And there were a few people online that, uh, that said the same thing and I couldn't think of a tool either, even as just thinking about that. Like if you just look up the two funds on Morningstar and see that they buy a few different things inside of them, um, oh, there it is. But I also like your caveat that, Talk with your advisor. I don't think a good, don't think a good defense OG with the IRS is, uh, hey, the Stacking Benjamins guys said on their podcast probably won't hold water. I'd, I'd love to have our own private letter ruling though. That uh, <laughs> the Stacking that, Benjamins that, rule that quoted Stacking Benjamins. Yes, either for us or against us. Either way, it would be cool. Remember the Stacking Benjamins decision of twenty two. Oh, the Stacking Benjamins decision. Oh. Such a big deal that was. A lot of a lot of case law after the SB decision of. 22. Thanks for the question, Matthew, to the basement. 
If you'd like to join us again in the basement, stackybenjamins.com slash basement is the way to join our Facebook group. Is he, get a, is he getting a t-shirt for that one? Uh, he is not. You know why? Because he didn't call it in. Had he called it in, stackybenjamins.com slash voicemail, he would have dug. So good point there. Yeah. Good. I don't, yeah. I mean, I don't need any more t-shirts out there that aren't on my back. <laughs> so I'm fine with that. We get just a couple more things to talk about. Before we talk about sending Doug a t-shirt, which we'll get to here in a second. Number one is if you're somebody who is looking for deeper dives, then we can get to on all of these topics, whether you're catching up with a show late, if you miss a show, or if you heard us and you're like, you know, I want more information on that thing. Brooke Miller writes our phenomenal newsletter, the 201 Brooke and I dive into all of this in depth. So while the show's 101, newsletter 201, stackybenjamins.com slash 201 gets you signed up for the newsletter. Two of them a week. It's a lot of fun. And also when we do things like I'm going around the country or we find out some special deal or one of our one of our friends, like we just talked about something that Paula's working on right now. If you want to know all that stuff, stackybenjamins.com slash 201 signs you up for our wonderful newsletter. But if you're not here for a newsletter or here for just our charming personalities, you really need better help in your corner. OG and his team are taking clients to get to their calendar. Head to stackybedgemans.com slash OG. That's the first place to go to think bigger about your financial future. All right. Time for us to say goodbye. Doug, what should we have learned today, man? Well, Joe, first, take a lesson from Oliver Berkman. Time management is better when you realize you're human and can only do so much. Start off by deciding what you cannot do and let it go. You'll be far happier and more focused. Second, when you're trying to call the market, yeah, you don't want to do that. But the big lesson, I thought I was the only one who was never really sure how many teeth I'll have when I wake up in the morning. Turns out, I might just be a horse. I'm cool with that. Thanks to Oliver Berkman for joining us today. His book, 4,000 Weeks, is available in whichever bookstore you choose to waste your life in. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2022, and is created by Joe Salcihai. Our producer is Karen Repine. The show is written by the brilliant Paulette Perhatch with help from Joe, me, and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen to our show, check out the 201 Deep Dives written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. You'll find the 411 on all things money at the 201. Just go to stackingbenjamins.com slash 201. Once we bottle up all this goodness, we ship it to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart. Steve helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to chat with friends about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is our social media coordinator and the room mother in our Facebook group called The Basement. So say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. Both she and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. To join all the basement fun with other stackers, type stackingbenjamins.com slash basement. 
I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we'll see you next time back here at The Stacking Benjamin Show. Not only should you not take advice from these dorks, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any financial decisions, speak with a real financial advisor. Welcome to the after show. This is the part of the show that doesn't exist. Guys, what's going on? I'm, I'm kind of sort of hungry for dinner. Me too. <laughs> Doug, you hungry for dinner? I'm never not hungry for anything. That's true. I can yeah. attest to that. Yeah. I can't wait to hang out with Doug this summer. I'm going to go to uh, Northern oh, Michigan and hang out with Doug for a day. To ostensibly play golf, which is really just an excuse to go eat things in all the different well, spots. Actually, more like play golf, which means spend the first four hours recording podcasts oh, and then trying to suck. make it afternoon tea time. Doesn't, Doug, historically that mean watching OG throw his clubs? Isn't that what playing golf means? It has meant that in the past. But I, I mean, there are stories on the internet, um, some of which have been verified, that he may have turned a new leaf. What? He may not be chucking clubs anymore. And you played with me recently. You played with me in April. Did I did I did saw I? that there was I saw that the like the, the grip and the club went like over the shoulder and then you backed off. But you were close. I, I mean it was on a tomahawk. It was like, you know, I was like get, 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 get. and then it was like he's grown a filter. Has was, he grown a filter or or a or a fuse? Well, no. Definitely not a filter. No, 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 there's no, there's no filter. I still, you know, curse like a sailor, but, um, but no, I've, you know, I've just, I've become more mellow in my age and also I'm a way better golfer. So why can I be mad? You you're, know not, I mean? you're not that much of a better golfer than you were when you were throwing clubs. When you shoot in the seventies, I mean, like, okay. really like, I mean, you're darn near open qualified at that point. Everyone that I see carries a rainbow around their shoulder. I've healed a lot of people in many ways. <laughs> Who are you? I'm an angel in an earth suit. I tried to talk her into going to Texas with me to ride a horse backwards, but she vetoed that. <laughs> I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Yeah, yeah, okay. Acha. <laughs> no matter what you say, no matter what you do, no matter how you feel, it's always up to you. You can't go wrong with the cat in the hat. <laughs> Just as simple as making soup. F-U-N stands for finally understanding nothing. Yay! Let's go. Let's rock. Ah!
I am a tickle monster. Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, There are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.